Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very happy to say we have Mary Hyman on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Czechoslovakia, The State That Failed. This book was controversial when it came out in 2009. It's been re-released in 2011 as a paperback. It was suggested by one of the listeners to New Books in History who found it extraordinarily compelling. It shatters a lot of myths, I think we can say, and it, as I say, it elicited something of a response from uh, Czechoslovakia and people who are Czech nationalists. I I think that's fair to say. Um, so, in that sense, it's a it's a very interesting book for us because we always like historical controversies. So, first, I want to say, Mary, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Um, maybe you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, well, I was born in Holland. I was the child of U.S. diplomats, and so I grew up in. Um, we moved countries every three years, so I grew up in Southeast Asia, Belgium, Zaire, Washington, and so forth. Um, I think this had something to do with my approach, which might come up later. Um, I ended up doing a PhD in Oxford and then was a research fellow in Cambridge and then a lecturer at York. And then I came to Strathclyde, where I moved away from religious history, which I've been doing up to that point, and, well, not completely away, but moved away from British religious history and got interested in Czechoslovak history. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's quite a switch. Most people may know that um, one of the academia is a little bit like uh, being in prison in the sense that they don't want to change <laughs> cells very often. I know that in my case, I did a similar sort of thing and sort of switched fields. How how is it that you became interested in um, the Czechs and the Slovaks in this area of the uh, world? Um, it started as a an idea on my way to a job inter- to the job interview at Strathclyde, and I, my brief was to teach something on continental European history, and it, um, my feeling was that I was equally ignorant about all of it, so I could just pick any. Um, and I picked <laughs> Czechoslovakia deliberately and randomly um, as a small state that, that would be maybe a microcosm for looking at themes in European history. And um, the more I thought about it, the better it got, because I thought you can get you know, east and west, you've got... Um, every now and then it comes on, on stage. I mean, my, my, I, I guess my only strong feeling was that we, we always look at European history from the point of view of the great powers, mm-hmm. and what I wanted to do was look at it from the position of a country that didn't have a lot of influence in international affairs, um, which I think of as being a much more typical European experience. Mm-hmm. So that, that was what got me interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and through teaching, I then got more and more interested and then realized I needed to learn Czech and, and then just got completely gripped and moved to Prague and, and so on. And mm-hmm. uh, that's that's how it all started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I like what you say about Czechoslovakia being a microcosm of 
I guess what I'd call the European experience, because it does have all the European elements. You know, it's multi-ethnic, and exactly. it went through these, these various political phases which divided people along both ethnic lines and political lines, and sometimes they intersected, and sometimes they didn't, and sometimes they killed each other, and sometimes they were imperialistic, and other times they were really nice to each other. And so it's a, it really is sort of Europe in, in miniature. And so in that way, I, I think it's a, that's a good insight. I, that had not occurred to me. Um, so tell us why you wrote Czechoslovakia, the state that failed. I'm particularly interested in the state that failed part because that is that is the element that really elicited the most criticism. Absolutely, um, and understandably, I think. Um, the title came last, as is often the case, and um, I, I suppose I wanted to signal a few things. And first of all, I should say that just in terms of the rhythm of the title, it's from a Saki story, uh, The Mouse That Roared, if you remember mm-hmm. the, the subtitle. So that's where the rhythm came from. Um, my, uh, my, first of all, I wanted to signal to readers that this was not just, um, uh, as it were, an innocent narrative of the history of the state, although I hope it's that as well, but that there was an argument that ran right through the whole book, um, that it has a theme. And I think if you put that right in the title, then people know that it's going to be critical of, checks of, the, of the experiment. I mean, the, the original working title I had for a long time was the Czechoslovak Experiment, and that's where the word failed came from. So, so in a sense, that experiment in, in multinationalism is how I would view it, that, that did fail. So in 1918, you know, Benesch was promising at, at uh, sorry, in 1919, Benesch was promising at Versailles that this would be a sort of Switzerland, a liberal, humane state that would be very tolerant to its ethnic minorities and linguistic minorities. And in that sense, I think we can say that it failed. Um, it also failed in a more obvious sense that it, you know, collapsed 20 years after it was founded and then collapsed again as soon as authoritarianism was taken away. So it it wasn't maybe sustainable. Um, I'd be careful. I wouldn't say that the Czech or Slovak nations failed. I would say that they succeeded rather spectacularly well. So it's, it's really the state that failed, not the people. That was the other reason for that title. I wanted it to be clear that it wasn't the Czechs and Slovaks I was critiquing, but a particular state project. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of nations not writing their own history because yeah. they, they inevitably get it wrong. I know I know that in my case I get American history wrong all the time and I write and have written Russian history for Russians and you know I think that they're probably glad that I've done it because it gives them perspective that they can't have. Well, you, you, I mean it's always flawed as well, isn't it? I mean I think any Czech or Slovak is perfectly within their rights to turn to me and say, "Well, look, you don't understand this from the inside. You don't really know." And they'll be right. Um, on the other hand, you do, as you say, have a kind of perspective from being, precisely from, be, from not being an insider. There'll be yeah. some things you understand, some things you don't. Yeah. It's a good corrective, I think, because there's a great weight of um, books giving the, the alternative perspective, which, which I was trying to critique. Uh, yes, indeed there are. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that you do in this book and you do it in a quite thoroughgoing fashion, is puncture what we might think of as uh, myths of Czech, and to a lesser extent Slovak, uh, nation-building and nationhood. There are a lot of things in here. You're very critical of a lot of the sort of general notions about Czechoslovakia. And the one that occurs to me, uh, not knowing a lot about the region, is that uh, the Czechs in particular have been victims. That they either have been mm. that they either have been pushed around by their neighbors so that they couldn't um, blossom in whatever way nations blossom, or they've been abandoned by other nations that claimed they were allies, and so they never really had a chance. That they really weren't yeah. agents at all here. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, I suppose that is one of the central critiques of the book. And I think, again, Czechoslovakia is only an example here of, I mean, I think there are many, many um, nation states and indeed groups that um, perceive themselves or, or frame their whole way of looking at things as, as through this lens of victimhood. I think it's very dangerous because I think it often, as I think happened in the Czechoslovak case, then leads to a perpetuation of that, um, the kind of persecution that the victim nation suffers, they then very frequently go on to inflict on someone else. And I think if you actually look at the photograph section in the book, I sort of like to think no one, no one in all, you know, 100 reviews or something, no one commented on the photographs, but I think they tell the story in miniature as well. Um, so you begin with, uh, you know, Hitler walking in and taking over um, in Prague, and then you see gypsies being, or Roma being persecuted by Czech authorities, then Germans being expelled. I, I noticed a couple weeks ago you had... Um, that you know, excellent book, Orderly and Humane, by yeah. Douglas. I mean, yeah. again, um, that story, and then you know, Hlinker Guards assembling Jews in Slovakia. So each group keeps is at once a victim and a perpetrator. I suppose that's mm-hmm. my point. It's, I, I wouldn't deny that the Czechs were and that the Slovaks were victims in some ways, but they were also perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And um, and those are very emotive terms, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose my point is that you're not immune. I. I reject the notion of there being good and bad countries, <laughs> good and bad people. <laughs> you know, um, all nations are capable of these atrocities. All have dark passages in their history. And, um, and we know that as Americans, and, you know, as well. Um, so I think it's too easy if you're one of the so-called victim nations, especially in the Second World War, to think, well, there are these bad guys, the Germans, or take any other group, there are these bad guys, the Serbs, the Rwandans, the Iraqis, whoever's mm-hmm. on the current bad list. And that then just wipes the slate clean for the other nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you see it in a very, you know, in a, I mean, a horrifying way um, with things like, uh, you know, the Theresienstadt, for example, being used, um, you know, one camp to, to persecute Czech nationalists and communists, another camp specifically for Jews, and then after the war, those same camps being used specifically for German speakers, not, not people from Germany, but local German speakers. So, you know, um, horror perpetuates horror, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Czechoslovakia itself. One of the things that always struck me about Czechoslovakia is its unlikelihood. Um, yeah. It was part of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. A lot of, I, I don't want to call them nations, but large ethnic groups that had some degree of consciousness in the 19th century were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, they all didn't get states, uh, and they certainly didn't get states where... Um, you know, there were several nationalities that were intentionally cobbled together to form a kind of uh, Switzerland and <laughs> that's a funny image to me. <laughs> Switzerland in um, in uh, in Eastern Europe. How how is it the case that Czechoslovakia came to be created? Why was there a Czechoslovakia at all? Um, well, I think I think that's a combination of the political skill and um, diplomat- diplomatic skill of. The few camp- the, the people who were originally Masaryk and Benesh originally campaigning for Bohemia, but I think the the main reason I mean the conventional answer this isn't this isn't something new I've come up with um, is that the you know it suited the the Allies' aims war aims I mean and and I think Benesh and Masaryk were very um, skillful in persuading the Allies that first of all in equating Austria with Germany in propaganda and also through um, the, you know the, the the gallant. Czech uh, Legion in 
Russia being the only people on the spot at the right time. So, I mean, there was, there was a combination of luck and skillful exploitation of that luck and, and skillful use of propaganda. And I think um, Andrea Orzov has written an, an excellent book, The Battle for the Castle, that set some of that out, too. That's come out, that came out at the same time as mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were obviously working along similar lines independently. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one thing people yeah. might not, I don't know if people know this or not, but uh, Czechoslovakia as such did not only have Czechs and Slovaks in it, it had a, a other people in major ethnic groups. Uh, maybe you could just talk about the biggest of them, beginning with right. the Czechs. Well, first the Czechs. Um, the second largest group was the German speakers. Um, only the third largest group was the Slovak speakers. Um, there's another complication that Czech and Slovak were sometimes considered the same language and sometimes not. They're close enough to be 95% plus in- mutually intelligible. So, you know, um, in a different context, they might have been called dialects. So it's not, uh, however, this is, as, as I'm sure you know, um, politically it's like Serb and Croat. You know, you, uh, they're absolutely considered separate languages and, mm-hmm. and a great deal of scholarship's gone to prove that they have different etymologies and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the purposes of collective imaginings of oneself as a nation, uh, the Slovaks... It, it, it wasn't clear. I mean, one of the things that the Czechs kind of say in retrospect is that you know, we, in effect, helped the Slovaks gain their, their sense of nationhood um, to demagurize, as they call it. A lot of Slovaks didn't think of themselves as Slovaks exclusively. They thought of themselves as, as Hungarians mm-hmm. who also spoke another dialect. That's another complication. The Czechs and Germans had had a much longer um, history of, of mutual antagonism and... Uh, and, and, so, and so we're kind of sharper and clearer in being on different sides since the 19th century. I mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've wandered off your question here. Well, no, but the, and then the, the, south, the southeastern part of what becomes Czechoslovakia is particularly complicated because we have people that we don't yes. even think about them as this, existing anymore, Ruthenians. Yes. Like nobody well, even knows the, about them. Yeah, I mean, the, the Russians, if we want yeah, to call Russians, them that. I mean, yeah. They speak a language which is um, on the political right got defined as Ukrainian, um, under the Soviet Union, got defined as Russian. Again, it's 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 uh, the Slavonic languages. You know, <laughs> it's it's a long. There's not a, there's, there aren't sharp divisions. You know, as as one dialect, if you like, merges into the other and gradually becomes a separate language. Yeah. So it's it's a complicated issue. These are much more politically fluid categories than than Westerners always understand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there, of course, there. Uh, one sh- there I was going to say one sharp linguistic boundary is the is the Hungarians. Yes. Um, that is a sharp linguistic boundary. Again, that's comparable to the Czechs and Germans, if you mm-hmm. like. It's another sharp one. Right. Um, they're the two non-Slavonic languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you have Jews, and Jews, again, are a slippery category in, in this thinking because Jews were often, and more and more that's intriguing me, that they were really considered a sort of subspecies of Germans um, because of being associated with German names and um, you know, through for historical reasons and also speaking Yiddish in some cases and so on, and also often voting, as it were, in the census, uh, in the old census, you had you could only choose one nationality, and often Jews would, would opt for German. Um, mm-hmm. And even the ones who opted for Czech were later, often those same people were later expelled as Germans, yeah. you know, they'd opted for, for Czechs in the census. So there's a lot of fluidity and a lot of contingency. Mm-hmm. And you do see genuine real-life stories of these things where people in the same family might, one might be expelled, one might be accepted, one might you know, be welcomed into the Communist Party, another, um, sort of, you know, there, there are these terrible ironies. It's nothing to do with um, blood or race. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to do with, with language and 
political identification. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how did these people come to consciousness, or that is, their political elites, how did they come to think of themselves as nations in the 19th century? Or did they? Or was, you know, did the Czechs take themselves back to the 15th century? I don't know. Oh, that's a big question. Um, I don't know how, how far I can generalize about that. I mean, I, you know, I use this kind of blanket term, romantic nationalism, mm-hmm. to, to try and evoke um, the same sort of nationalism you got in the late 18th century. Um, that was sort of like striking an attitude, and it's a bit like, you know, I live in Scotland, it's a bit like, it's, it's a bit like wearing a kilt in Parliament, mm-hmm. or... Um, so quite a lot of these fathers of the nation didn't even speak the language of the group they were supposed to represent. And mm-hmm. I mean, if you take even a case like uh, Masaryk, who's the founding father of, of Czechoslovakia, the first president, um, you know, what are his credentials? His mother was German-speaking. His father was Slovak-speaking. So you sort of think, well, how did you get to be founding father of the Czech nation? You know, it is. Um, so I think, at least in the 19th century, you could choose. You know, you could decide. You could have a conversion to the Slav side as a German. And most of the the um, famous founding fathers, or, you know, Palatsky, all these other people, they did. They chose. You know, they chose to be on that side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think also the emperor, um, the Austrian emperor had a lot more to do with it than, than is generally or widely recognized. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of there was a lot of subsidies. The, you know, the, um, there was a lot of encouragement of uh, the Austrian project was about a multi, was about multinationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of encouragement of, of the, the smaller nations, if only to to break the domination of the Germans, who were becoming too strong a block. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. yeah. I see. I see. Just I see how that could work. So let, let's go back to uh, 1918 and this unlikely birth of a nation. So. Again, this will sound simplistic, but, uh, you know, being American, I always think about Wilson. Wilson goes over and says, uh, here's Wilsonianism. Every nation gets its own state. Not quite what he said, of course. Well, yeah, not quite what he said. I mean, yeah, not quite what he said. But uh, if we generalize in that way, uh, yeah. how do you get Czechoslovakia with all these Hungarians and Jews and uh, a bunch of Germans? And, you know, that's a very confusing thing. It seems like it's yeah. not consistent with Wilsonian principles at all. Well, first of all, we could have a whole other discussion about Wilsonian principles, which, you know, of course, his diplomats immediately, you know, wrote in their diaries, oh, my God, how could he have uttered such a stupid thing? Yeah. You know, this is, he's created a terrible problem here. But um, there's an inconsistency in Czechoslovakia because there, there was a pretty good argument, or I'd say a very good argument, for saying that the territory, the, the geographical territory of Bohemia should have independence. It had a history of independence. Um, it, you know, it was, it was considered a... Um, a, a discrete political unit, if I can put it that way. So there's a certain sense in that. The trouble is, um, because it had a third, sort of one German speaker to every two Czech speakers, you could have it be a coherent entity as a, as a territory, but not as a nation state, not mm-hmm. as a Czech state. And therefore, that was the reason, that was the rationale for bringing in the Slovaks, because if you took the Slovak speakers of Upper Hungary, which is where they were, there was no place called Slovakia until this point, um, then that gave Czechs plus Slovaks a majority um, in the state. So then you could sort of call it a nation state. But if you did that, you had to also bring along, for strategic reasons, a, a, a fair chunk along the border with Hungary. Um, so southern Slovakia, a large contingent of um, Hungarian speakers, and then, as you were saying before, in the eastern, in the eastern uh, side of Slovakia, and into Ruthenia, then you have these, this, this mix of a, a large proportion of Jews, um, Russian, Ruthenian speakers, 
and you know, even more of a mix, and a lot of poverty too, which was a problem for the state. That, that region was very poor and rural. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a lot of the Jews there were, were ex-serfs. They weren't um, people in the towns necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of these cases where it's hard for me to put myself in the seat of the people who decided this, because it seems like uh, there's only two results from this. One, there's a large group of, uh, of pretty powerful people who are, in, are really dissatisfied and have a resentment, that is the Germans and the Hungarians, they don't like it. Uh, and whether they'll put up with it, I don't know. I mean, I can't think they didn't think this. And then there's the Czechs, and they're basically in an untenable situation because they have to deal with these populations that are, are pretty antagonistic. Um, I suppose, I mean, yeah, the, 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 you know, it's a bit of a dangerous game to play the sort of what-if game but in history. But um, I suppose it could have been handled better is, is one thing I'm maybe saying. I mean, the... Um, Bohemian Germans didn't have a lot in common with German Germans, if I can put it that way, and and that I think came out um, quite starkly and and uh, during the the war. And I think Chad Bryant's written quite interestingly about what happened to these Sudeten Germans, um, some of whom were very enthusiastic for for the Reich and all that. When they actually got it, it wasn't quite what they expected, and they weren't treated like equals by the other Germans. They were treated like second-class Germans, they said, and so on. So they were kind of um, Yokels, if you like, mm-hmm. in, in the view of the Germans. Um, you know, could it have been handled differently? I mean, had, you know, had, um, I suppose one thought might be a federation might net where you would have, because these regions were relatively discreet within the state, so could you not have had a Hungarian, perhaps a Hungarian um, district, a, a German district? Would that have been less stable or more stable? I mean, we don't know, do we? Why didn't you know, they do that? that w- yeah, why, why didn't they do that, though? I mean, was there were the Czechs pushing against this, or yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, they were very, very nervous um, right from the start. Uh, the first thing that they were really frightened of was a Habsburg restoration. That was the big fear, and all the you know, and there was some some kind of humorous complaints by the head of the intelligence services in the thirties saying, you know, I can't get any intelligence on Germany at all because all I'm getting is you know what what the the Habsburg princess had for breakfast, and mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, at first, I think there was just some misguided. I, I suppose it's natural always to fear what's happened in the past rather than to be able to anticipate what's what's around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it was was that that they just didn't see the future dangers. They saw the past danger. They saw the danger of being forcibly returned to Austria-Hungary. They didn't see initially the danger of Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, this is something Tim Snyder's actually written about, and uh, it was news to me that there was an encounter entire. Habsburg revival movement in the oh, 20s yes. and 30s. Oh, yes. I just thought they were gone and sort of disappeared. They no, all moved no, no, to no, Paris no. and New I York. Mean, it looks that way with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. But um, again, think of 1848, and I mean, they must that must have been somewhere in the folk memory that you can have a revolution and then it can all go right back mm-hmm. yeah, within a short period of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the two uh, principal figures here. The, the the much of the book is bound up with them and what they wanted and they did. And the first one is Masaryk, and then the second one is Benish. His I guess his protege. I don't know. Um, talk a little bit about Masaryk and, and his uh, role in all this. Uh, in, in just I mean I suppose Masaryk's only in the beginning. Of, um, that's for the first part of the book, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. being established. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I mean, he's, he's an enigmatic figure, isn't he? He's, a, I, mean, he's I think he. He carried a great deal of weight and um, authority, and I think deservedly so. He's very impressive if you hear him interviewed or you read his writings. He, he comes across with a certain kind of um, gravitas and uh, authority, uh, 
um, authority. Um, however, there's, there's other stuff which I haven't quite got to the bottom of yet, and I still haven't for this book, but he was certainly um, working for the British intelligence in some capacity. This is, this is a whole other thing that I, I think will eventually get uncovered and was offering his services to, to quite a few. So there's more to this than meets the eye. And then if you look at all the English-language biographies and French-language biographies um, singing his praises, they're all by people who were also mixed up in intelligence or who were working. So there's, you know, there certainly was a promotion of Masoretic also by the Allies as um, a way of, I suppose, a way of uh, preventing Germany from being too dominant in the post-war settlement. So I guess that's the, you know, the, I think Masoretic was very skillful and helpful at, persuading the Allies that he would be a good tool to use in this regard, mm-hmm. um, that their interests were in common. And he, he wrote all these pamphlets, and he was a very energetic, energetic propagandist, and, you know, placing articles in the newspaper and keeping the momentum up and knowing when to use something. Benesch was indeed his protege, and he had a, he had a whole circle that had, of, of admirers that had been around him since the turn of the century, um, after his conversion to the Slav cause. And, um, you know, they carried on working for him and then this was the and then he used movements that were already in existence. So the only serious movement for independence apart from his own abroad was was one uh, the Slovak League of America. And he managed to negotiate with them and, and come to deals and then later there were all kinds of complaints that he hadn't kept his side of the bargain and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, I think he was a you know, he was a skillful Diplomat, operator, propagandist, all of the above. Yeah, he, he really was. I mean, I, I know that I can tell you that, in all honesty, as somebody that studies, well, I sort of study Eastern Europe, I don't think I've ever read a bad word about him. <laughs> I really don't, because he until just seems, now. you know, he <laughs> yeah. would tell now. Because, you know, he seems yeah. like the George Washington or something. I've never read a bad word about George Washington either. I'm sure there are bad things. But, you know, it just seems, you know, he wrote books, and, and then he, he had he had followers in the West. And, and you know, he's he's this kind of huge, larger-than-life figure. There was kind of cult of personality developed around him. Yes, and my guess is that he actually probably was modeling himself quite deliberately on George Washington, as it happens. Um, his wife was American, and he was very, very conscious of these kind of figures and how to, how to, how to you know, he worked systematically at promoting, at promoting this. And also there was, you know, there was, um, he did have his own private um, intelligence service as well, in addition to the state one. I mean, he also, um, again, if you look at, at Orzov, for example, she, she went into the archives of that in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. I didn't have um, that book wasn't at my disposal when I wrote this, but I mean, a lot of what I suspected or hinted at, um, she's brought out more fully in her book. So, it, it, you know, it isn't just me, as it were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's there in the archives. Mm-hmm. So let's move on a little bit. The uh, uh, Masaryk and his fellows set up a, uh, a democratic republic. And, you know, again, what, what I read was it just worked wonderfully until these Germans <laughs> yeah. showed up. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, there were several problems with it. I mean, I think that the essential problem is, I think the way, if you try to get yourself into the heads of the, the people who set up the state, I think they, they thought in terms of national groups. So they thought in terms of, um, you know, you, you could argue that the state was democratic in the sense that, it, that individuals had democratic rights. So, so far, so good. That's true. Um, the problem is, was that even if um, the, the, the way it worked in, in practice was that there were five um, Czech political parties who came to a kind of gentleman's agreement behind the scenes that they would always support each other's policies. So they had a kind of um, coalition government in practice, even when it wasn't there in name. And 
as, it, as I say, as it happened, those were the five dominant Czech political parties. It was known as the Pietka, the, the five. Um, so you can sort of see the frustration in 1935 where it came to a head, where if you look just at election results, the most popular party in terms of the ballot was the Sudeten German um, party, and then followed by the Slovak People's Party. So the two most extreme nationalist right-wing parties were the, the dominant voice. Um, had, had it really been properly democratic, those would have been the parties that got in. So it's a kind of, <laughs> depends what you call democratic, you know. Um, it was democratic in the sense that it, it didn't go over to authoritarianism. On the other hand, it wasn't representing the will of the people. So uh, I think that the democratic, I'm sort of, uh, I'm not sure I'm making, being very clear here, but the, the democratic reputation it has, um, it served the Czechs to have the so-called democratic parties in power because those were also the Czech national parties. Mm -hmm. And the German and the Hungarian and the Slovak parties, as it happened at that time, were not democratic, minded, or, or were more um, right-wing, mm -hmm. more extreme right-wing, um, you know, anti-Semitic and all that, all that kind of thing. So it looks good in a way, but it's not, it certainly wasn't representing the will of the people. So, so where people point to Czechoslovak exceptionalism and say, oh, look, look, you know, they were surrounded by a sea of totalitarian sea of, you know, states, and Czechoslovakia alone withstood it. Well, um, if you look at it from a different angle, the, Czech, the, the Czechs were dominating over the other nations in their state, just the way everyone, the way the Germans were over the Jews or the DC. So it was, it was a means. I, I, I think had it been more democratic, it would have been authoritarian, which is kind of a horrible thing to mm -hmm. say, but mm -hmm. it, I, I, I think that's objectively true. Mm -hmm. That was true. And it's not really that surprising. I mean, it would be sort of surprising if it was the one state in the whole region that was completely different in its outlook. That would be surprising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this think, is something, you know, I was going to say, this is something that I talk about with my students when I teach this era. I don't teach it in great detail, but, um, and we're coming to the era of fascism, is how popular fascism was in general. Oh. It was, you know, a lot of the right-thinking people were, exactly. were, were loved fascism. They thought it was a great thing, and uh, exactly. thought it was you know the future was fascism. And so let's move on into the 30s. Uh, the Germans uh, who were um, Bohemians and maybe before that they were subjects of Austria decide they're Germans all of a sudden. Am I wrong about yeah. that? Yeah, they do. I think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, decide. I mean, first of all, you know, in a way, nobody. I mean, this was one serious fault of the of the old of the Habsburg system that was then inherited or perpetuated by the Czechoslovak system. That in the census you you could only be you could only belong to one nationality, which was clearly absurd. Um, this was, you know, a, a region where families were mixed, people were mixed, and you know, lots of people spoke two languages, three languages. So you had to you had to kind of choose, and then people would choose for all kinds of reasons. They would choose, you know, mostly for, you know, if you had to pick, uh, if you had to generalize very broadly, on the whole, people were going to choose the nation that was advantageous to them at that particular moment, mm -hmm. and they might then switch back in the next census. So it could have a lot to do with, you know, whether you wanted your child to go and sit a good school down the road, and if that was Czech or German, or if you wanted, you know, whatever kind of advantage you thought you could get. And in the Czechoslovak state, if you look at the figures, um, Germans didn't really get anywhere being Germans. So um, in the foreign office and so on, you know, there are almost no German representation. Um, you know, they would treated at least by the secret police and by the state authorities with suspicion, just by being German, you were, you were immediately an object of suspicion and, and monitored and so on. Um, and you can sort of see how that would 
may have been intended to to promote um, homogenization, or you know, um, and and Benesch confidently predicted that in the future, you know, this was a gradual, natural process that the Germans were slowly going to be eliminated through osmosis with the Czechs, and this would just happen naturally. It was a sociological um, process that no one could stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of talk was obviously very frightening to to Germans who were, again, as you say, in the 30s, where everyone was so acutely conscious of of um, this as being an important part of their identity. And then they were subject then to all this propaganda from the Third Reich as well. So I think it pushed Germans in both directions. You know, some did try to merge um, or found that they were unable to, found they were repelled by the system they were trying to join. And then others, may, you know, were lured or attracted by by the kind of promise of the future. And, and of course, Germany was a great success story for a while, wasn't it? It was, you know, mm-hmm. unemployment was going down. You know, it was all looking very rosy. And Nation of the future. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I think I think it's a complicated story, and I think the Jews were increasingly caught um, in the middle mm-hmm. so, as well. And yeah, well, I was going to say let's move on to the Munich crisis, or what we call the Munich crisis. I don't know what the Czechs call it. Uh, what do the Czechs call it? Um, they the, call it um, the diktat. Yeah, right. usually. I mean, uh-huh. or, or, or the conference, or the yeah, right. Or the so agreement, any of the above, but diktat you hear quite often. Right. So the way we treat they, that, the way we treat that in the West is we call it appeasement. You know that, mm-hmm. that we basically give up. What what is what? What do you, did you have a take on it, or how? Do, what do the Czechs feel about it? Or um, I mean, the Czechs. You know, the, again, of course, there are lots of sophisticated Czech historians who 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 have a, have a more informed view. But the kind of popular view is that it was this monstrous diktat. It was imposed um, against the will of the Czech people. They weren't consulted. They weren't involved. I mean, it's you know, it's the first of the two great comas. I think the second being the invasion after '68. Um, so this is the first, and, and this, you know, won them, as it were, the laurels of victimhood um, ever after, really. But, <clears throat> again, it's more complicated. I mean, let me first say, you know, I do think, um, uh, you know, one can go too far being a revisionist. I mean, I do think it was, it was you know, obviously humiliating and, and awful, and um, particularly what happened next was awful. But there was um, the actual agreement itself, you know, Benesch, um there wasn't, I don't think by that point there really was another option um, that was viable, as far as I can see. And, and Benesch could have been, rep- I mean, I forget where I saw that, but the Benesch was, could have been represented at the conflict. I mean, he wouldn't, <clears throat> he wouldn't obviously have had any weight or any voice whatsoever. And he basically begged, you know, please impose it on us so that it won't look like we mm-hmm. are a party to this awful capitulation. Because, I mean, it clearly was a, well, it was a complete failure of everything he promised and stood for. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was he brought about exactly the calamity that the whole state was set up to avoid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a tragedy on more, in more than one way. Mm-hmm. And then you know there's it's a, it's this kind of general rapaciousness. The Hungarians and the Poles get into the same business, and, and you know, um, that, that is they take chunks of Czechoslovakia, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, of, of course, if you were looking at it from their point of view, they would say, "Well, you took chunks of it two hundred years ago," right. you know. And the, the actually the real victims that or not the real victims, there are, there are victims, there's plenty of victimhood to go around, but the Hungarians came out terribly out of the First World War, didn't they? Yeah, um, yeah. And much more dramatically, and I often think, you know, when students in class say, oh, well, you know, you can forgive the Germans all this because look what had happened to them, you think, well, look at what happened to Hungary, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and although it wasn't pretty what happened next, it wasn't as bad, so mm-hmm. there's... Uh, but I think for Hungarians, I mean, they lost, what was it, two-thirds of their population and state, and... Mm-hmm. The bit that was called Slovakia was a really core part of their medieval, of medieval Hungary going back into the, you know, to the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. So, 
um, as I say, I don't think there's one country in the region that, that wasn't both a victim and a perpetrator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's move forward a little bit, and then we have the complete calamity that Czechoslovakia disappears. Uh, the I think it's called the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia or something, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Although you've done what, what everybody does, which is skip over the middle bit. Okay, which, yeah, all right, um, go ahead. For me, for, <laughs> I, don't mean it, I don't mean it to tick you off. I no, just, go it's ahead. It's just interesting how everyone does that. Um, between Munich and the actual um, takeover of the, the Protectorate or the creation of the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, um, is I, I, wrote, I wrote one chapter just on that. It's only six months, period, which is why everyone kind of skips over it. But that was actually, for me, where the key of the thesis or the revisionist thesis of my book came from was by taking that period in slow motion and looking at it more carefully. And what I saw there was that a lot of things which I had assumed, like everyone else, were imposed by Germany or by Hungary afterwards actually already had begun under Czech and Slovak authority. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and um, tell and us what those things were. Well, um, that's where you begin to get anti-Semitic legislation, for example. Um, and in the and it's also where, um, really, the, the Slovak National Party turns from being what I think had been a... kind of moves over that borderline, to my mind, from being a, a right-wing party to being a, a real fascist party that has this notion of corporate... a kind of Catholic corporatism, um, that there's, you know, that the, the nation is, is a almost like a, a medieval body, um, and it, it, which cannot include, and it's a Christian one, so it excludes Jews on religious grounds. So again, anti-Semitic legislation coming in and anti-Semitic persecution coming in in Slovakia at that point that had nothing to do with Germany and wasn't even predicated on the same kinds of arguments. So it wasn't based on race, it was based on confession. Um, so if you were born of two Jewish parents, let's say, but converted to Catholicism, you would not be persecuted, right? Mm-hmm. But if you were, um, you know, if you were Jewish or non-Catholic, you would. So it was different from Germany. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important um, because it shows it was local um, and homegrown fascism, much more like what was going on, I think, in Romania. Mm-hmm. And they had, you know, paramilitary groups. And they also, a lot of the... Um, structures of authoritarian regime that later re-emerged under communism were developed in Slovakia precisely at that time, 38 to 39, mm-hmm. and then through the, the First Slovak Republic, the Wartime Republic, which was a fascist, um, or sort of, they, they, the Czechs call it cleric-fascist, so, you know, because it had this Catholic um, dimension, and the, the dictator was a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. I should add, he, this wasn't approved of by the Vatican. Um, but uh, so, so there was, that was where I began to realize that these things that are presented as if they were misfortunes that always came from outside, you know, almost like bad weather, that these actually had native homegrown roots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This, is mostly, I mean, this is mostly in Slovakia, what we would now call Slovakia. This is mostly the Slovaks we're talking about right now, right? The Czechs too. The Czechs okay. too. Right. Again, they um, abolished the political parties, had only two. Mm-hmm. There was one party of the left, one party of the right. Um, Began bringing in, and they were about to move. They were about to move to a, to a one-party state. They were mm-hmm. on the verge when mm-hmm. when the Germans intervened. And again, the reason for the German intervention is also not um, widely known. I mean, what happened was that Slovakia declared independence first, mm-hmm. and then that gave Germany the excuse to say, "Oh, well, we're coming in here, you know, to, to clear up this mess." Mm-hmm. So, um, and and also everything that Slovakia did, Ruthenia immediately copied. So Slovakia declared independence. 
Ruthenia then declared independence. Pulled Ruthenia was independent for exactly 24 hours and then got taken over by Hungary. Um, and Slovakia carried on independent until 1945. Mm-hmm. 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 Hmm, sobering. So then let's go on to the period of, uh, I don't know, Nazi rule. Um, what happens in that period? Um, again, very complicated because uh, the... So, okay, so first of all, the not sure we should really say the Nazis, the Germans, because the first protector wasn't a Nazi. Mm-hmm. He was um, he was uh, he was von Neurath, and he was um, he was a, a military man, a sort of traditional German military man. Um, initially, uh, the treatment was nothing like as bad as everyone had expected, and that I think then set the tone for the rest of the war. That it was it was easy. It it would easily have. <laughs> You know, um, it wasn't a place like Poland where the regime was so awful that that you were sort of driven to an extreme. It was more like Vichy. Um, so there, and you had the same problem of collaboration, I think. Mm-hmm. So you, the Czech president continued, the Czech parliament continued to meet. These things weren't abolished. Um, so, and side by side, but then in theory, these were supposed to be only for Czechs and the German speakers were all honorary citizens of the Reich suddenly, mm-hmm. and they um, had their own completely separate administration under the Protector. So they had a German. I'm sorry. So in, in sorry in Berlin, they had a German administration. You know, somehow they were being ruled from Berlin. The the rest of so it depended on and if, depended on what race you were in the German view, mm-hmm. who you were beholden to, um, and that created all kinds of complications. So you had. Um, different sets of laws for different people. And to some extent, in, in some of these laws, most of these laws, of course, discriminate against Czechs, but even in the discrimination, some sometimes gave them advantage. For example, if you were a German, you, of course, as a patriotic German, were going to want to volunteer and fight in the war, um, whereas if you were a Czech, um, you weren't allowed to. So, you know, there were all these... Uh, so there were Czechs who sat at home during the war prospering. You know, it may have been humiliating, it may have been unpleasant. It might not have been what they wanted, they may have resented it, and they, they clearly did. But on the other hand, if you were a German, uh, you know, having the honor of going to war and being killed might, have, might not have been what you had in mind either. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's not as clear-cut as it at first appears. And as I was saying before, these Sudeten Germans found that they were often discriminated against in favor of Czechs because, the, um, again, this isn't my work, uh, Chad Bryant found that in his book that... Um, some Germans were being, you know, would kind of say, well, you know, the Czechs are much more like Germans than, you know, in, in terms of being so-called Germans and being hardworking and so on, whereas these Sudeten Deutsch are these yokels and they're lazy and, you know, we'd rather promote the Czechs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I happen to remember that the Slovaks, actually, the Slovaks um, mustered actual units that fought with the Nazis, or with the Germans, yep. let's say that. Very um, proudly, yep. Yeah. Uh, what did the Czechs do? Um, in terms of well, they didn't. They didn't have units no, they didn't, on the, yeah. the Germans. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Right? No. How, how, were, how did they relate to the Germans during the war? Uh, um, That's a dangerous question. I, mean, I know. Sorry. It's a dangerous question. I know. Well, no, just hard to answer because there yeah. were so many different responses. Yeah. I mean, there were people who collaborated very actively and energetically. There were people who um, resisted, you know, heroically, bravely. There were people who were. I guess most people were probably somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. You know. I think they were very much. Um, I think German rule was very much resented and hated. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's any. I don't think that's yeah. mismaking. I think that's true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for a lot of Germans, you know, it hadn't really been, for a lot of Czechs, it hadn't really been that long. You know, um, it had only been 20 years. I think for a lot of people, it might have been, they might have felt, well, okay, that didn't work, you know, back to, back to reality. Um, except that the German regime, the protectorate, was, was much worse than the Austro-Hungarian. Yeah. And it was a much harsher regime, and it got, it got really appalling under the Reichspartitur, the second Reichspartitur. Um, I mean, I think at first it really was a bit like a return to Austria-Hungary in some respects, whereas under Heydrich, um, it, was, it was a different proposition, but he was a kind of Nazi zealot. He was a very different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he was, of course, um, the Czech uh, parachutist who was based in London and, and went back, Czech and Slovak, um, you know, successfully assassinated him very much against the wishes of people living in the territory who then had to face all the reprisals. Yes. But it was a spectacular symbol for the, for the Allies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's move toward the end of the war, and I'm, uh, I have in mind what I learned from Ray Douglas's book, Orderly and Humane, and one of the, the facts that was really amazing to me is that even at the sort of beginning in 4041, this displacement or movement of Germans was already being planned once the war was over. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I too, um, like you, this was one of the things I found really shocking. And I, I um, again, I found that in the archives and then Ray Douglas's book came out shortly afterwards and I was lucky enough to read it in manuscript sort of just after my book had come out. So I thought, okay, you know, it's even, it was, I realized from his book that it was even worse and on an even bigger scale than I had realized. But um, again, for me, I guess two turning points. One was finding out about this second protectorate, uh, sorry, second republic um, from 38 to 39. That that changed how I saw the story. And then the second thing I think was this immediate post-war um, time of, of of horror. Um, and I think I think for me, what was really horrifying was realizing that it wasn't about the war and it wasn't about Nazism as such. That a lot of this was really just like, okay, this is a good opportunity. I and mean, Bennett was very explicit. Um, privately, in his private correspondence, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity. It's been given to us on a plate. We can now get rid of all the Germans, and it'll look like it's just anti-Nazi. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the that that really was the thinking. I think, um, and again, it, it ties in with what he was saying all along. I mean, he had hoped that the Germans would slowly be absorbed by the the, the sort of dominant Czech nation. The idea was that Czechoslovakia would eventually, slowly, gradually become a nation state. Mm-hmm. And the war then gave an opportunity for um, speeding this up, this process up. Mm-hmm. So the Jews had already been pretty much got rid of. Um, that wasn't the intention of, I should say, of the, of the Czech authorities at all. That wasn't, that wasn't sure. one of their plans. They did intend to get rid of the Roma, however, and were pretty successful at that. So, you know, the, Jew, the Jews were out of the equation the, for, for all intents and purposes. The Roma were out of the equation for all intents and purposes, apart from Slovakia, where they'd done better, where they'd survived better. Um, and, you know, here's an opportunity for changing borders, potentially, or, or if you can't change borders, then keep the same borders and move the population. So to get rid of Germans. And the other thing people never pay attention to is, again, the Hungarians. The Hungarians were also got rid of. Mm-hmm. Now, on what basis? You can sort of see the arguments, even if they're spurious, for getting rid of the Germans after, you know, the horrors of the Nazis and so on. And uh, again, one has to keep emphasizing, these weren't Germans from Germany. These were local people who had never lived in Germany, mm-hmm. never necessarily had anything to do with Germany, who just happened to speak German, okay? Now, some of them may, in fact, have been energetic, um, and some were energetic supporters of 
the Nazis and so on, but, but by, by no means all were like that. So, you know, this, this notion of collective guilt because you speak German, but then also collective guilt because you speak Hungarian. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I should say, as, as Davis points out, they were mostly uh, children, women, and old yes. people, because yes, all the men had been left. taken off. <laughs> yeah. No, that's who was left. And so, I mean, that shows you that it's really about getting rid of a whole group. I mean, I, you can see the argument for them, and I think the idea was that the only stable Europe would be a Europe that had yeah. nation states that were discreet and um, right. you know, self-contained, and that if you couldn't do it, this was a golden opportunity you know, for, for sorting that out once and for all. And I think the Allies, you know, again, as Douglas's book brings out as well, the Allies um, went along with that. Oh, idea. they did, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they yeah. totally did, and that was also so, I mean, surprising I, to me. Again, all through this, whatever critiques I'm making of, of the Czechs and the Czechoslovak administration, I mean, this could be leveled at any country in mm-hmm. Europe. This is yeah. not, I'm not picking on them. This no. is just one example where you can see, again, Europe in microcosm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, we're running out of time, and I have a lot of ground to cover, so let's do it quickly. So one of the images that you get from, so the Soviets come in, uh, they occupy it, and uh, socialism takes hold, kind of authoritarian socialism takes hold in, in the new Czechoslovakia. Uh, and, and again, th- this is just from my primitive reading and sort of listening to the news over the years. We have this notion of Czechoslovakia resistor nation. And, and, and that, you know, we, we think about 68 and all this other stuff. And can you, can you talk to us a little bit about. Uh, Czechoslovakia under under communism. Okay, well, I mean, I think the first important thing to remember is that in in forty eight, um, although it's called a coup, it wasn't a coup. There was a, a cabinet reshuffle. Okay, <laughs> that was the no arms were involved. Um, mm-hmm. There was no actual force, and um, I think Czechoslovakia. It was not only the last country to fall behind the Iron Curtain, but it was also the only one to do so. Uh, you, you can't quite call it voluntarily in a system that wasn't that already wasn't really quite democratic, but as voluntarily as, as one can, as, as anywhere else, I mean, the, the, you know, the Communist Party was the majority party elected in freely in, in the last free elections mm-hmm. in um, 46, so, and the country was already on the road to socialist, I mean, it was going to be a socialist state, it was just a question of how quickly. Mm-hmm. So in 48, you know, all that happened was that the ministers, um, some of the non-communist ministers resigned, hoping to spark um, general outrage about the communists slowly taking power, and instead it backfired, and with Benish's agreement, they then formed a government and then took over. And then they very rapidly did turn it into a kind of, um, really a very Stalinist sort of model of of communism initially. Um, It got, I'd say from 49 to 43, it was really, really as bad as anything you, you could see anywhere in the um, behind the Iron Curtain throughout the throughout the uh, post-war period. It was um, the worst show trials, um, the most uh, fear, I think, um, a, really a police state. Um, I think probably a lot like the GDR. That's probably the, the, they were probably the two worst. And again, probably no coincidence that they were on the, the border with the West. Um, 68, again, I, I present a much more complicated story than the, the heroic story. I mean, first of all, I traced... Dubček's rise to power. I just was curious, you know, what he was doing before he got known for the Prague Spring and found out that the story was very interesting. I mean, he'd grown up in the Soviet Union. Um, He'd been there under Khrushchev during the reforms. He came back and he became leader of the Slovak Communist Party, the provincial party. And there he um, initiated, he loosened censorship as an experiment. And my argument, um, I can't prove it, but it, it certainly fits with 
to my mind was what happened next, um, that he loosened it in order to discredit his opponents. So whereas in the 50s, communists got rid of each other, got rid of rivals by putting them on show trials or setting them up with scandals um, with the help of the secret police, in the, he tried a new way, which was more effective in the end and um, left him you know, without blood on his hands, which was to just let the, let the press leak things to the press mm-hmm. and let them be discredited that way. Um, and this was very successful in Slovakia. It made him very popular. He also allowed Slovak nationalism to be tolerated and to, to grow a bit. And I think that supported him. He then came back. He then was kind of parachuted in, as it were, to the main communist party in Prague and tried the same techniques. And um, I think my verdict is that he was out of his depth, really. And what worked well in the provincial communist party couldn't work in the national party in the same way that he'd hoped it would. Um, And it got out of control. There was just too much demand for, you know, people. it, It kind of opened up rifts within the party and the kind of power struggles that, that meant that he was gradually losing control of the party. And I think um, the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, although I don't think what they did was you know, defensible, I think it's understandable. I, th- I mean, I think their verdict that he had lost control of his party was either true or was about to be true. Mm-hmm. So um, I think mm-hmm. they stepped in to defend the Communist Party from... Uh, from weakness really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well you know he has this Dutrek has this reputation again as you know he's Masaryk and, and Benesh and these things as um, not a Stalinist I guess I'd put it that way yeah he certainly wasn't a Stalinist that yeah, is absolutely not true. a Stalinist that wasn't, his, yeah. that wasn't his temperament yeah but that doesn't mean he was um, you know I certainly also I mean he certainly wasn't a convinced liberal which is how he's often portrayed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think there were some people in his Politburo in his presidium who were convinced reformers and, um, and you know, radical reformers. Uh, he was not one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's, let's move on then, then, I guess, to the end of the whole show. How, how, did, uh, how, and, how and why did Czechoslovakia fall apart in your interpretation? Um, well, I mean, you can answer that on several levels. I mean, I guess the, the, the stock sort of Czech and Slovak answer you hear um, is that nobody wanted it to fall apart. Nobody wanted the country to, to split in, in 92. Um, but on the other hand, they, the two nations couldn't agree on anything. Um, so, you know, whatever, whatever was up for discussion, they could never get agreement. And so in the end, they, they fell apart almost by default. I mean, there was never a referendum about And some people feel bitter about that. Um, so this was, the split was decided by the, the representatives of the two sides. And, you know, Metiar was not a particularly democratic person. So, um, you know, it's, that's still, I guess, resented. I suppose, on the other hand, the, the kind of inevitable conclusion of, of all the chapters in Czechoslovak history that I was looking at suggests that probably they couldn't live together mm-hmm. um, uh, when things got bad. You know, it was okay in good times. Mm-hmm. but that that strain would always be there. And they are very different. I mean, I think they're very friendly nations, but they're very, I mean, to one another, but they're very different. Mm-hmm. They have very different, um, you know, the, the the Czech side is much more secular-minded, much more socialist, The um, you know, to this day, and the Slovak side is much more traditional Catholic and, um, uh, you know, different sort of, I mean, I think, <laughs> if you like, uh, Hungary and, Hungary has left a, a long mark um, on Slovakia and Germany on mm-hmm. on the Czech side, on the Bohemian side. So 
they're different. They're different cultures, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what's it like today? Again, I haven't, you know, really spent any time there to speak of. What's it like today to be a Czech or a Slovak? Do people do people pine for the old days of? I don't know where do you start the Habsburg Empire or, um, you know, the nineteen twenties or what? What do they think about as their golden age? Well, I mean, the the, the Czechs still talk about Masaryk and, and the First Republic in the twenties, the thirties as a golden age. Um, the Slovaks, some Slovaks still hold up the first Slovak Republic. Um, you know, for all its faults, they say it was it was it was independent. It was the first thing. Um, I think what's most striking to me is how much Czech and Slovak public discourse still turns around the kind of national concerns and the kinds of generalizations about other nations that I've critiqued in this book. So. Um, Certainly, I think, I think notoriously, it's, it's very hard to have a conversation with anyone about um, gypsies, for example, um, because the racism is, is so strong and so near universal. And I mean, I know President Havel, the former President Havel, talked about this a lot and also talked about attitudes to Germans and so on. So I think in Hungarian-Slovak relations, in German, um, Czech, and in discussions of Roma, you still hear a lot of these prejudices really completely unreformed. And I think... If I had a moral purpose, I mean, I'm extremely fond of, of the Czech Republic and, and Slovakia, and I've, you know, I'm married into a Czech family now, and I, I love the place. And I suppose part of what I was trying to do in this book was to suggest that this isn't a good way to continue thinking mm-hmm. about about other nations, um, and that it does lead to these kind of horrors. And um, even in a country with that's proud of it and rightly proud of. Um, certain traditions of humanity and democracy and so on, which are also part of the Czech story, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned uh, what other people think, because um, I, I did have a chance to read some reviews of your book, and I think uh-huh. you're, you're a brave person, because um, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so, some of them, uh, I don't know if I could have withstood all that. Uh, some of them were uh, vitriolic, I think I'd put it that way. Uh, hey, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like to receive some of this criticism and, and maybe yeah. how you've dealt with it? Because, I mean, a lot of it has been very, you know, I don't, it doesn't exactly go at, well, some of it does go ad hominem. I'll be honest with you. Some of it Absolutely, does. Absolutely, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I don't think that's appropriate, obviously. But I just want to, as an author, I wonder what it's been like. Yeah, I mean, it was very, um, first of all, just the amount of attention it generated was, I mean, I did think it would create some kind of a splash, but I had really underestimated how big that impact would be. Um, so I had something like 100 uh, reviews and, and hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters and hate mail a fan mail. I had a, um, believe it or not, a Austrian princess came over to take me out to lunch. <laughs> All kinds of. Um, I got a letter from someone from from British intelligence. I mean, extraordinary things happened. Um, so all that was, uh, and and uh, I believe I was condemned in a speech by a Czech consul for mm-hmm. a, for a crime against humanity or something. Yeah. Anyway. You can, you can put that on your CV, I think. I did say, yeah. <laughs> well, I think there were several waves. Um, what I tried to tell, I did reply to every email and letter I got, and um, one of the things I tried to say to people who wrote um, just hate mail was that I was sorry that the book had hurt their feelings, which is clearly mm-hmm. what that's about, um, and that my intention wasn't to set out to give a bad impression of Czechoslovakia, but to try to show that you know, even in a country as relatively... Uh, humane, decent, liberal as Czechoslovakia, the kinds of horrors that we usually associate with fascism, communism, authoritarian states, and so on, were possible. Um, so that this is a universal, modern human problem. It's just—it's not just a matter, as I've said before, of certain nations being bad nations and other ones being victim mm-hmm. nations. We're all. 
capable of, of, we all have these dark passages in our history and we're all capable of perpetuating these kinds of atrocities. So that, that's my first point. Um, I think for most Czechs, part of the problem was, I think they assumed wrongly in my case because of my surname, because of the way it's spelled, that I must be of German origin. Yeah. Um, as it happens, um, that spelling was completely made up and um, it's, <laughs> it's Jewish, you know, which is, as a taxi driver once said to me, um, you know, he said, oh, what's your, you know, what's your name? And he said, oh, and he said, oh, um, are you German? I said, no. And there was this long silence. He said, um, are you Jewish? And I said, well, you know, but family origins are Jewish. And uh, he said, <laughs> there was this long silence. I said, do you have any idea which is worse? And he was like, hard to tell. Hard to tell, <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're both pretty bad. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean, um, you know, just knowing a little bit about your background, it's pretty hard to say what you are. I mean, I mean that in the best possible sense, because you, yeah, you're a person, yeah. of, you know, both in terms of your descent and also your your experience. I mean, you you're from everywhere and done. You've been everywhere. I mean, well, I think, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I do think my perspective and also my sense of, uh, I'm afraid, moralizing zeal in this book um, is it does come from my experience because I have been uh, a minority most of my life and I've been the other, the national other, and I know what that feels like. Um, and I also know uh, from uh, the inside something of the dynamics of, of great powers and small nations. So these are themes that are close to my heart. And, um, you know, as a little child uh, moving around, you know, uh, like every other child, you know, you're taught you're supposed to hate the Chinese or whoever it was. I was like, okay, fine, I'll hate them. And then we'd move countries, and then this time we're supposed to hate the Germans. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. And then this time we're supposed to hate the French. And then this time we're... And after a while, I realized that it just didn't work because mm-hmm. it, it stopped making sense. <laughs> yeah. So I think it made me particularly um, sensitive to generalizations about people on the basis of nationality, religion, race, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gave me, and I, I suppose that's very American anyway, to have this kind of crusading zeal about it. That's, mm-hmm. that's, um, that's in me too. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I, I found very interesting, Americans, you probably know, just... Uh, well, they love Czechoslovakia and they love the Czech Republic today. I mean, Americans just go there in droves. Sort of, until they live there for a while. Yeah, well, that's, it's funny because the person that suggested this book had gone there, you know, looking for utopia, had lived there a while, and came back and said, you know what? <laughs> this place is not Nirvana. Uh, yeah. So, so, but it's, I think it does hold a special place in, in, in the American uh, consciousness among European mm. nations as, mm. as, the, as the Czechs, especially the Czechs, I don't know what this law is, being kind of innocent. And, and, and I think as you point out, and this is something we talk about a lot on the show, you know, these things like, um, you know, uh, rampant nationalism and fascism and communism, in hindsight, some of them have been very, they, they turn out to have been very harmful. And, and, and the thing about it is it's always hard to predict which ones will appear harmful. Because you, you, don't, you don't know if we were alive 100 years ago, if we wouldn't have been strident nationalists, or 75 years ago, if we wouldn't have been fascists, or 50 years ago, if we wouldn't have been communists. I mean, I'm old enough to remember communists. I mean, really smart yeah. people. Who thought it was yeah, the way yeah. forward? I mean, these people were not fanatics. They were smart people. No, not at all. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I don't, you know, again, it's not, you're not casting aspersions on, on, on the Czechs or the Slovaks. You're just saying they're kind of like everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and as it happened, I, I, I know that I couldn't, I don't think I could write about Nazis because I, I know that I'm not, I couldn't really be balanced, yeah. I don't think, in no. my assessments. Whereas with the Czechs, because, it, I mean, this is, they may think this is a pretty backhanded compliment, but because I love Czechoslovakia, right. or the, the Czechoslovak republics now, because, and, and because I feel at ease in Czech society and, and, and love it there, I feel I kind of have license to critique it the yeah. same way I would criticize 
the States or anywhere else I yeah. feel at home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's only once you feel you belong, or up to a point, belong to a place that you feel you have the right to, to be critical about Well, I would, like, I, I would like you to come to the United States and live here for a while and then write a, a political history <laughs> of the United States, because I think we need it. <laughs> because what we got going on now, nobody understands. Uh, you know, it's just, we don't, we don't, uh, we've lost perspective, I think. So we need you to come over and, and help us out. So anyway, uh, Mary, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking with uh, Mary Hyman about her book, Czechoslovakia, The State That Failed. Um, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Again, Mary, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope that everybody has a great week.